Well, we had our gift day last week, and for the last few weeks we have been saying please. We've been asking you to give, and you have given uh, so far very generously. And what do we teach our kids to say when you say please? We also say 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 thank you. We, we, it's called good manners. And to, so today, that's what I want to think about. I want to think about saying thank you. Because as we get older, I've discovered that we get really good at saying please. Particularly in our relationship with God. We get really good at saying, please, will you give? Please, will you do? Please, will you sort out? But sometimes I've realized that in my own life, I come to God with a shopping list of things that I want him to do, but I don't have a thank you list. I don't have a praise list. I don't have a list of, of gratitude. And gratitude's really important. You know, I, I was just, I was thinking about it even from a practical point of view, just little things that irritate me. Like maybe, I don't know, maybe you're more godly than me, but if I hold a door open for somebody in a shop and they walk through and don't say thank you, I just shout, you're welcome. And they go, oh, sorry, thank you. Or, or if you let somebody out in the car and they don't do the little flashy light thing or the wave, you just, you kind of want to run them off the road. Um, because we, we expect gratitude, we expect appreciation. But the thing is, our world is becoming increasingly negative. I mean, just watch the news, read the news. It's just, you know, if you want to, if you want to get lifted up, if you want to, you know, get a bit of a buzz, don't watch the news. Um, it's, it's, you know, the world is more divided and polarized than ever, you know, between Brexit and Trump and Russia and Iran and China. And then there's our own lives and all the stuff that's going on there that's less than perfect. It's, it's easy not to get drawn into this negative downward spiral. And what I've discovered is that I need to be intentional about giving thanks. That it actually needs to become a practice. You see, we, we moved into a house a while ago. And even every house we've lived in, here's what I've discovered. You don't have to plant weeds. <laughs> have you found that? You don't have to plant weeds. They just grow. You do have to cultivate flowers. You do have to plant. Sorry, I keep sounding posh. People said to me recently, you've got a weird accent when I say flowers and things like that. Do you know why that is? Because we lived in Dublin when I said flowers. They all looked at me and hadn't any idea what I said. So I'm not posh, okay? I'm really not. I just, uh, people just couldn't understand what I was saying and I just got used to that. Um, but for flowers, you, you need to cultivate them. You know, you need to plant them. You need to prune them. You need to look after them. But weeds just grow. And it's the same, I think, with our attitude in our lives. Negativity is the default. Weeds will naturally grow. We will always find things to be negative about. But to find things that we're grateful for, that we're thankful for, that we're positive about, takes intentionality. It is not just something that comes naturally. A kid doesn't naturally say thank you. They naturally take and we teach them to say thank you. We train a child to say thank you. And I think it's the same in our own lives. It's not a habit. It's a practice. It's something that we have to practice. But if we get out of practice like anything else, we can very quickly lose the skill and the ability of gratitude. And our culture promotes this. Our culture promotes dissatisfaction. I mean, it can be through comparison on social media. I mean, I've said this before, but 
you know, if you want to be depressed, go on to Instagram and, or, or, and, and, and look at what everybody's doing. Look at all these beautiful people doing all these amazing things. You know, they're, they're, they're climbing the Himalayas, they're jumping off waterfalls, they're in, you know, uh, some beautiful country, uh, like scuba diving. And the most exciting thing that's happened to you today is that you had a really good cheese sandwich at lunchtime. And you're just like, my life is so... But we see the highlight reels and we don't see the behind the scenes and it's very easy to become dissatisfied our our little boy was starting to watch for a while their youtube and we thought he was watching educational stuff but they've got this very crafty way of advertising to kids or toy lab tv where basically it's kids and grown-ups playing with toys and it's it's as if it's a, a a program but it's really just an ad and they're making, you know, the, the people who are making them are making a fortune. But our little boy, we, we found that we would ban him stuff and within a day or two he wanted something else and he wanted something else. And so we had to ban him from watching some of this stuff because I, my first degree before I started theology was in advertising and marketing, okay? And here's what I discovered. You can't sell something to a satisfied person. If somebody's happy with their life, you can't sell them anything. You have to create dissatisfaction. You have to create this feeling of, if I only had this, I would be happy. If I only had this car, my neighbors would be jealous. If I only had this house, I'd be happy. If I only had this holiday, I'd be rested. If I only had this Lynx deodorant, I'd have girls chasing me down the street. If I only had... And it creates this culture of dissatisfaction, but it's actually an empty hole. It's a vacuum because we're never fully satisfied by it. Yet Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says this. 1 Corinthians 5.18. He says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. If he were to say, give thanks in good circumstances, give thanks when you get, give thanks when life's going well, give thanks when you're healthy, give thanks when you get a big check or a bonus or a new job or when you're in your summer holidays, especially if you're a teacher. You know, I can understand why that would say, give thanks. But you know what I discovered, what that word all means? All. It's actually, it's quite funny. I looked up the Greek this morning. It's the word panty. Um, P-A-N-T-I. Panty. Give thanks in, in other words, don't get your pants in a twist. Okay? Give thanks in all, sir, you'll never forget that word again. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is God's will for you. What is the biggest question young people ask today? I just want to know the will of God for my life. What's God's will for my life? When I talk to young people, when I go and speak in places, oh, would you just pray for me that I'll know God's will, that I'll know his destiny, that I'll know his plan, that I'll know his purpose. And I get that, and there's some stuff that the Bible doesn't tell us, but why don't we do the things that the Bible already does tell us? If you're not already giving thanks in all circumstances, you're not already doing his will. Do his revealed will before you start to search for his will, which he hasn't yet revealed. He's already made it clear. Give thanks. Be grateful. Gratitude is a small thing that makes a big difference. It's a small thing that makes a big difference. And here's what I've discovered, that gratitude is really about 
perspective. It's about how we see it. Actually, I meant to take a photograph this morning because this week I was sitting out the back doing sermon prep. One, I think it was Thursday afternoon. And most of you will know we moved into our house last winter in November. And so because of the winter and then the weather hasn't been great, we don't have a garden yet. And so we've just got this big pile of muck and weeds basically out the back. And I was looking at it and I felt God say to me, what do you see? And my initial reaction was I see a big pile of muck and weeds. And then, I, for some reason, I, I, I was prompted to think about where God in Genesis tells Adam to name the animals, and he says, whatever you call it, that's what it is. And I felt God saying to me, whatever you call this, that's what it is. And I can look at it, and it's a big pile of muck and weeds. Or I can look at it, and I can see a garden. The grass isn't there yet, but it is a garden. It's got all the potential, all the makings. Everything is there, apart from the seed right now. Everything is there to make a garden, but it depends how I see it, how I look at it. And there's so many things in our lives that it's what we name them that will determine our level of gratitude. It's how we label them. It's, it's, it's what we decide to... You see, we can't always change what happens to us, but we can change how we think about it and respond to it. We can see... Something happening to us as a disadvantage or we can see that as an advantage. David could have seen Goliath as a disadvantage, as an enemy. David saw Goliath as a doorway to his destiny. The same person, but different perspective. And there's things in our lives that I think God would say to you, it is what you call it. It is how you see it. Because what we focus on grows. How many of us know that? What we focus on in life grows. If we focus on negativity, if we focus on the things about somebody that annoy us, if we focus about what's wrong with our job, what's wrong with our church, what irritates us about that person, that will grow and that's all we will see. What if we focus on the positive? What if we focus on what we like, what they've done right, what God has blessed us with? You see, there's many of us that, and I'm one of them at times, we complain about things that we once prayed for. I wonder, do you do that? Have you ever complained about something that you once prayed for? Kids. Remember when you prayed for children? Lord, please give me a child. And then you get pregnant and you're just so overjoyed and you pray over you. Oh, Lord, just let this be a healthy child. Lord, just let this child come out whole. Let this child just be. And then they come out and nine years later, you're like, you eat blankety blank, what, you know, and, and you're, you're calling them everything under, and, and they're driving you mad and they, you know, you don't realize that when you pray for something and God gives it to you, you also have responsibility to look after it. How many of you prayed for a husband or a wife once and, and God provided you with a, let's say he provided you with a husband, okay, ladies? You prayed because your friends were all getting married and you, 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 you saw this guy and he had, you know, he, he was just everything you wanted. And you, you saw him walking down Lurgan High Street and you thought, goodness, if I could get him. And, and you got him and then 15 years you look at him and you're like, for sake, Lord, you give me that? And, and all you can do is find fault with him. You know, all the things that you used to find cute. You remember when you were dating? Oh, all the wee differences you used to find endearing. Oh, the wee quirks. 15 years later, you want to kill them every time they do it. And it's so because you've lost that sense of gratitude and appreciation. This is not us, by the way. I want to say that this is not us, okay? 
10 years married this year, and it's been the happiest three months of my life, the first three. Um, <clears throat> no. Um, you know, you, you prayed for promotion in a job, and then six months later, you're complaining about distress. Did you think they were going to give you more money for doing no work? You know, like when you pray for something and God gives it to you, you're grateful for the first half hour and then suddenly you can start to become ungrateful. And yet God would say to you, actually, what are you focusing on? Because what you focus on grows. And if you continue to focus on the negative, then that's all you're going to see. How different life would be if we focused on what we're grateful for. And we're all guilty of it because, like I say, weeds are the default. Flowers take cultivation. Weeds grow without effort. Negativity comes without effort. We have to train our children to say please and thank you. We don't have to train them to moan. We don't have to train them not to share. Imagine your marriage if you were more thankful. Your job if you were more appreciative. Your kids if you praised them more than criticized them. Honestly, I think so many marriages would be radically different if we were just to stop taking each other for granted. It's the little things. You know, when's the last time you said thank you when they took out the bin? It's just what they do. Yeah, but when's the last time they said thank you? Because somebody had to take out the bin. When's the last time you said thank you for that beautiful meal that they've just made? When's the last time you said thank you for the man putting the toilet seat down for you ladies? You know what, that takes effort, okay? We don't want to touch that seat when it's up. And we don't know why you can't leave it up for us anyway. When's the last time you said thank you for a clean house? When's the last time you said thank you when, when they make an effort just to look nice for you when they dress up? Just the little things, folks. It's the little things. But the little things make a big difference. Most marriages don't fall apart because of one big event. They fall apart because over the years we have started to take each other for granted. And you become two strangers living in the same house. What about the little things? The little things make a big difference. They make a big difference to us, but they also make a big difference to God. God thinks gratitude is a big deal. Gratitude matters to God. God notices gratitude. It gets his attention. Let's look at a a familiar passage, Luke 17. Now, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and he traveled through the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going to a village, into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. So this is getting towards the end of Jesus' ministry. He's moving towards Jerusalem where it's all going to come to a climax. And he's on his way there and he's in the border between Jew and Gentile territory. And he's about to go into a village. We don't know what the village is. And suddenly these ten men come towards him but they don't get too close. And they're lepers. It says they stood at a distance because they weren't allowed to get too close. These ten men obviously were bonded together. It's, it's funny sometimes what bonds people together, isn't it? I, I always find it interesting what draws people together. Sometimes it's commonality. Maybe you have the same interest. Church bonds people together or faith bonds people together. Sometimes it's politics. Sometimes it's, it's hobbies. Sometimes it's, it, it, it's, it's enemies. You know that old saying that, that the, 
the enemy of my enemies is my friend. Sometimes we're united because of our enemies. And it's just interesting. Sometimes people are bonded through misery. Do you ever notice that? Misery likes company. That, that negativity and misery tends to draw people together. You don't tend to find nine positive people and a really positive person together. You tend to find a bunch of people who are negative together. And in this case, these people were bonded together by misery, by the misery of their sickness, by the misery of this horrible, skin-wasting, flesh-rotting disease. Enjoy your ice cream later, folks. But it was a highly contagious disease. We, we've read about leprosy in the Bible. And, and I, you know, we always go, yeah, Jesus healed a leper, Jesus cleansed a leper. We don't really realize, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but it basically just... It, it rotted your flesh from you died from the inside out. But it wasn't just the flesh rotting that killed you. It was it actually it it reduced the all sensitivity in your nerves. And and so what would happen is you would get these sores and these boils and you wouldn't feel a thing. And at night they actually re, they couldn't understand why what was going on. And in the fifties they watched a leper colony to see what was going on. In the nineteen fifties this was. They've got a cure now, but they didn't then. I know what they discovered that this is going to gross you out. Sorry, folks. But they discovered that rats during the night were coming in and gnawing on the open boils and the open sores. And, and that's what was actually taking away a lot of the flesh. But the, the lepers couldn't feel a thing. You could literally put their hand in a vice grip and twist it round and rip every muscle in their arm. And, and they wouldn't feel a single thing. That's what killed lepers. But it was a highly contagious disease. And so they were immediately social outcasts. The first sign of leprosy... Now imagine you're married, imagine you've got two little ones at home and you start to see these white marks appear in your skin. Very quickly you're going to be outcast. Imagine never being able to hold your wife or your child again. Not being able to go near society again. If anybody were to come near you, you have to shout, unclean, unclean. That's, it was basically a death sentence with exclusion and solitary confinement. And so these people are drawn together because of their highly contagious, life-ending disease. The only people they could spend time with were other lepers. You know, don't you even see that today? That You walk through city centre of Belfast these days, you see a bunch of druggies and alcoholics all hanging out together. People are just are drawn together by, by their condition, by their affliction by their their misery but somehow that that heard about jesus even though they were isolated and excluded somehow they'd heard about this jesus guy now this is in the third year of jesus ministry and earlier on in luke's gospel we read that he touched a leper and healed him so maybe we don't know maybe that leper was passing one day and he's so thankful he takes the risk and, and goes and tells these guys we don't know how they found out But the story had spread about Jesus. And I can imagine, imagine if this is you and you've got this incurable disease that's going to kill you and what separates you from your family. And you hear that there's this one guy who can heal you. You'd be waiting, wouldn't you? I mean, you, you can't go to find him. You're excluded from society. You're waiting and you're just praying and you're longing that just at some stage this guy might walk by. And somehow they hear that this Jesus is on his way. And they don't know much about him, but they've heard this. He's full of mercy. He's merciful. And and, and so they, they shout in a loud voice. They want to get his attention. Have mercy. Have pity on us. 
They get his attention. This was their moment. He was passing. And they get his attention and they ask him for something. There is nothing wrong with asking God. The Bible says you do not have because you do not ask. Ask and you will receive. There is nothing wrong with asking. If these guys hadn't asked, Jesus wouldn't have done anything. So they shout out in a loud voice, have mercy, have pity on us. And look at what we read in verse 14. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Previously, when Jesus heals a leper, he touches him. Here, he just speaks to them. And just a, a simple point I want to make about that is there's no formula when it comes to healing. There's no magic words or incantation. You know, some people would like to say if you just use the right words and just say them in the right way, that everyone gets healed. You know, look at how Jesus healed blind eyes. Sometimes he spoke, sometimes he touched them, sometimes he made mud. He did all sorts of things. There's no magic formula. And here he just says, go show yourselves to the priest. Why? Because the Levitical law in Leviticus 13 and 14 said this. If you have leprosy and you think you've been cleansed, you have to go to the priest. You have to show yourself to them. He will put you then in uh, like quarantine. You have to offer sacrifices for a week. A week later, he will come back. He will check you again. If there's still no signs there, you'll offer another sacrifice. You'll be in quarantine for another one. And after a while, he will pronounce you cleansed and you are free to go. It was a religious ritual. And so Jesus says to them, go show yourselves to the priest. Now, this is unusual. Because they haven't been cleansed yet. There's nowhere it says Jesus healed them. In fact, this is what it says. As they went, they were cleansed. So Jesus, they come to Jesus and say, have pity on us, have mercy on us. And Jesus looks at them and he says, go show yourselves to the priest. And they're looking at their skin and their skin is exactly the same as it was five minutes before that. That's a tough one, isn't it? You see, if they looked at their skin and it had cleared up a bit, I can understand them leaving. But they're exactly the same. And yet it says, as they went, they were cleansed. There's something God wants to speak to us about that. And that is that very often all you have is God's word to go on. And as you obey the last thing God told you to do, even if you don't immediately see evidence of it in your life, as long as you do it, you will see the result. You will see the miracle. Some of you have started tithing, and I'm not going to, this isn't a sermon, but I'm just, I've heard this from other people before, where they've tithed for two weeks and went, yeah, I thought God was going to bless me and broke. Yeah. You know, it's not like some, Ponzi scheme where overnight God, like you give him a hundred and he's going to drop 10,000 down as much, as much as some people on God TV might tell you that. Um, it's as you obey, as you take the step of faith, you might not see the evidence immediately, but as you trust Jesus and do what he tells you to do, you will see what he has told you you're going to see. They took action without visible evidence. 
So when they turned around from Jesus, their skin looked exactly the same. I wonder at what stage did they start to notice a difference. Were they 100 metres down the road? Had they got up to the gate? Had they made their way into Lurgan or Portadown? Or, like imagine if this happened today. How far would they be? I wondered, was it gradual or was it instant? I wondered, did it start clearing gradually? Or as they got, you know, 500 metres away, suddenly they looked. But you can imagine there was some point along the journey where one of them looked at the other one and went, your face is clearing up. And he looked at his hands and he went, my, my, my hands are getting better. What about me? Yeah, you're getting, you're getting better. What about me? Yeah, you're getting, yeah. What about me? You're getting better. You can imagine this start. I mean, this, this disease that was killing them and eating away at their skin, and they're looking at each other, and before their very eyes, they're getting restored. They're getting healed. They're getting cleansed. They're, they're getting better. You can imagine the, the excitement. You can imagine the, the, the jumping up and down and the passion and the enthusiasm. Let's get to the priest. Let's be declared clean. Let's go do the religious ritual because the sooner we do that, the sooner we get back to normal life. You know, God responds to faith and obedience. God responds to faith and obedience. God wants us to have faith no matter how we feel. Because I very often wait for my feelings before I obey or before I act. I wait to feel the desire for something before I do it. And yet God would very often say, actually, I want you to do it first and then you will see me work. I have realized something, that I can actually change my feelings by action. It was a, a, when I realized this, that, that if I'm feeling really low, if I'm feeling a bit depressed, if I'm feeling a bit discouraged, I can sit in the corner and mope and feel sorry for myself. Or I can get out of the house and encourage people. I can text someone. I can... You know, when you're in that way, you don't want to do anything. I can clean my room. I can, I can, I can clean my car. I can, you know, because when you're, you just, you, your car becomes... And I've discovered that as I do the thing, my emotions actually start to change. That I don't have to feel my way into actions, that I can act my way into feelings. That our feelings will follow our actions. And that when I make the first move... God backs me up. Think about Joshua 3. They're crossing the River Jordan into the promised land. What does God say? Put your foot in the river and then I'll stop the water. God, I don't want to argue with you, but could you not stop the water and then I'll put my foot in the river? And God says, no, when I see your act of obedience and faith, that's when I will act. It's that whole thing that I always say. When we move, he moves. When we move, he moves. When he sees us act in obedience, then and only then does he do his part. You see, in the world system, people say, I believe it when I see it. You know what Christianity says? You'll see it when you believe it. You'll see it when you believe it. When you have faith and when you act in that faith, that is when you will see it because the faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And many of you are waiting 
for God to do things that he's already told you to do. You're waiting for the right moment. You're waiting for prophetic confirmation. You're waiting for everyone to support you. You're waiting until you're better qualified. You're waiting until your life is more than order. And, and, and God's told you, actually, stop waiting. I've already told you what to do. I'm not going to give you another instruction until you obey what I've already told you to do. So stop postponing your purpose. Stop delaying your destiny. Take the first step when you move I will move. And so they were healed as they obeyed his command. Their action preceded the miracle. As you go. And as they went. And I felt him challenging me. That that my obedience to him can't be based on my feelings. It's got to be based on what he has said. If God has said it, I do it. And my feelings will catch up or not. That doesn't matter. My job is simply to obey because his word is always true. Let's finish up. Verse 15. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him and he was a Samaritan. One of them, one of them sees he's healed. All ten of them are celebrating, but one of them stops and can't believe what's happening. And the others are all caught up in the moment and excitement, but one of them stops. And he pauses for a second. And the magnitude and the enormity of what's happening overwhelms him. Have you ever had that moment where you just you just are caught up in that and you just realize actually this is this is this is a really this is a holy moment or something? And he he realizes I can't just walk away when this guy has just changed my life. And it says he goes back to Jesus. He stops and he has to go back. And look at what it says. It tells us four things about him. First thing is this. It says he praises God. He was praising God. Now who healed him? Jesus. In other words, there was something about this man that recognized in Jesus that he was God. That others didn't see. There was something about this man that recognized in this guy who looked just like everyone else that there was something divine about him he saw something in Jesus that most people missed he praised God secondly how did he do it in a loud voice it wasn't polite it wasn't dignified it was loud it was loud he was shouting thank you thank you Jesus you know somebody said recently I was talking to somebody just about worship and stuff and they said, I, I had never raised my hand in church. I just, I would never raise my hands in church. I would never do it. And I said to them, because they're into music, I said, the last concert you were at, did you have your hands in the air? Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, you know. Westlife, you know. <laughs> the phone out and all. Was, and they're into sports. I said, the last football game you were at. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to say Glenavon, but you'd never cheer for Glenavon. But, 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 you know, they're just shouting and screaming at these 11 boys on a field. And I said, so you will shout at a concert and put your hands in the air for a singer. And you will shout for 11 boys running about a field chasing a rubber ball, okay? But the God who has saved you, the God who has brought you back from death, the God who sent his son to die on a cross, I'm not going to raise my hands for him. What does that say about you? 
This isn't a guilt trip, guys. This is reality. That if we get more excited about 11 guys running around a field and some boy standing on a stage with a huge ego drawing attention to himself and we won't give our praise and our worship exuberantly to God, what does that say about our misplaced passion? Because those guys on the field will be retired in a few years and most of them should have retired years ago. And that guy on the field or on a stage, is probably going off the stage and snorting coke, or doing all sorts of things. And you're giving him praise, but the God who saved you, the God who loves you, the God who has got a place for you in heaven, I'm not going to pray, I would never lift my hands to him. Really? Honestly, we need to examine our hearts sometimes. And I know some of us are more extroverted than others. But we need to get to a place where you know what? We go, whatever that looks like for us, I'm not going to hold back. Whatever that looks like. It'll look different for all of us. And I know that. And for some of us, it'll be a step of going. And I get that. But at some point, we've got to get past ourselves. At some point, we have got to get past ourselves and realize that this God. You know, when, when we do it at a football match, when we do it at a concert, we're called a fan. When we do it in church, we're called fanatics. Isn't that bizarre? Let's be fanatics. I don't mind being a fanatic for Jesus. He was cleansed from leprosy. You've been saved from eternity in hell. Let's not hold back. And it says he fell at his feet. In other words, there was a bodily action to it. He, he fell at his feet. He was on his knees. That can be raising your hands. It can be on your knees. Whatever that is, we express worship with our bodies. The Bible talks about that, but I don't have a lot of time to go into that. But Jesus asked two questions. He says, we're not all ten cleansed. That's his first question. Then he says, where's the other nine? Anytime in the Bible God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he wants to make a point. He says, where's the other nine? They're off enjoying the blessing. Where's this one? He's off enjoying the blesser. It's one thing to enjoy the blessings. It's a completely different thing to recognize the source of the blessing and to worship him and to show your gratitude and your praise to him. We all want the blessings, but do we want the blesser? They all, you see, it said at the start, they stayed at a distance. It never tells us they got close. But this guy, once he was healed, once he was cleansed, once he was restored, he gets close to Jesus. He closes the distance between him and Jesus. One in ten was grateful. One in ten was grateful. And I want to challenge you to be the one. Be the one in a negative culture that's all about give me and taking. Be the one who stops to give thanks. Be the one who is grateful. Be the one who gives back. Be the one who's not just a consumer, but who is consumed with the presence of, and the love of Jesus. Be the one who is in a world filled, who in a world filled with negativity expresses thanksgiving, even for the little things. Be the one who isn't content to stand far off from Jesus, but be the one who wants to get close. And look at what Jesus says, verse 19. Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now when I read that, I thought that was strange. Your faith has made you well. Because we've already read that he's been cleansed. So what happened? Why would his faith make him well when he's already been made well? It's a different word. You know what the word for made well is here? Literally, it's, it's the word sozo, which means saved or made whole. I went through all the translations in Bible Gateway. And in many of the translations, the King James stuff says saved or made whole. In other words, 
The other nine were physically, externally healed. This guy was made physically, emotionally, and spiritually whole. The other nine were externally healed. This guy was internally made whole. You see, you can be healed on the outside, but still rotten on the inside. I know people who God has healed physically, but they've never turned to Jesus. I've prayed for people who God has miraculously healed, but they've never turned to Jesus. Their body has been healed, but their soul is still far from God. And this guy decides, no, that's not enough. I don't want to be just physically healed. I want to be close to Jesus. And that's why Jesus says your faith has healed you. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you whole. In other words, your response to me has brought salvation, not just into your physical body, but into your soul. God notices gratitude. God does something in this one guy's life that he doesn't do in the other nine. All because of gratitude. I wonder how many times I've missed what God wants to do in my life because I've been taking things for granted. Because I haven't said thanks. Ten were healed. One was cleansed. You know, I'm going to finish here. As a parent, I love buying things for our wee boy. I love blessing him. I love giving him good things. And he loves getting things. He loves it. And he, you know, he's always, honestly, he's so full of appreciation because one of his love languages is gifts. And so I play on that. His other love languages is, is uh, time, meaningful time. And Becky works on that one with him. Um, I just buy him gifts. Um, but, but imagine if I bought him gifts and he just looked at them and like, I would still love him. He would still be my child, but I wouldn't be that excited about keeping on buying him stuff. But because he gets so excited, he gets so enthusiastic about every gift he gets. That makes me want to give him more. Like, when I eat, you're the best daddy in the world. Like, he knows he's milking it, okay? Uh, uh, but you know what? It gets me every time, okay? That makes me want to buy him more. If he just took me for granted and didn't say thank you, I wouldn't give him bad things but it might stop me giving them good things. And that's the difference. That's what I want you to see here. When we don't give gratitude to God, he doesn't get angry and pour out wrath and judgment on us, okay? But it might withhold blessings. It might withhold the doors of heaven opening on our lives. You know, this is a significant weekend for me in many ways, but in one way, the main way is 30, 29 years ago, this weekend, I, I, I gave my life to Jesus. Our, our kids from our youth, some of our youth from our church are somewhere madness right now. In 1990, I went there as a 14, almost 15-year-old and had no interest in God whatsoever. And 29 years ago, on the 1st of July, 1990, God saved me. And I look at the last 29 years. And then 13 years ago or 14 years ago, I was walking across the car park in summer madness and I saw this girl with blonde curly hair. And I thought, who is that? I've got to stalk her. And a few years later, I did stalk her. And uh, we broke up, but then I married Becky. No, <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> that was a joke. It was Becky. Um, but, you know, so this weekend was where I had the most, two most important encounters in my life, Jesus and my wife. I have so much to be thankful for. 
And maybe that's why I've thought about this this weekend, because God has done so much in my life, and yet I groan and I grumble like all of us. And maybe God just wants to challenge us this morning and just say, you know what? There's always going to be things that you can find to be negative about. Like, this, this church isn't perfect, folks. But this morning we were just thanking God before the service for where he's brought us from a few years ago. You know, like we can find things to find fault with. We're not where we want to be, but we're not where we were. And I think sometimes we get so focused on where we're lacking and where we're not that we forget where we've come from. And maybe God just wants to remind us this morning to look at our lives and realize that he has given us so much He's doing so much, and he's going to give us so much. And just to start saying thank you, Lord. That's all it is this week. It's a really simple, it's not a profound message this week.